as we are kind of the theme we've had for the last few weeks is the desert. And as Doug also very eloquently mentioned, they're Jacob, another name for Israel. Israel has to pass through a desert to grow. And we're, we're learning about this. We're, we're seeing the fact that as individuals, as a church, as a people, the desert exposes us, right? And I want to make sure, uh, just thinking about that hymn we just sang, which is um, one of my favorites. The, it says in the last verse, uh, why, you know, the, 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 the writer of the hymn is asking, why do you do this? And he says, it's in this way I answer prayers for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break the schemes of earthly joy that thou may seek thy all in me. And I want to make sure we understand as we move forward, God is not taking away good things to get our attention. Rather, he's exposing the fact that we're turning to wrong things. We take things that are good and we worship them. And I'm gonna, the argument we're going to see this morning, I think that the way the Israelites thought about water was they thought that was the only thing they needed. And, and God is saying in our passage this morning that there's something we should thirst for that's even deeper, even greater. And so my hope this morning is that we would begin to see the secret that many saints before us have unpacked, and that is Christianity is not about living your life and, and having all of your needs met, and oh, by the way, you have a bumper sticker and you give a nod off to Jesus and to God. But Christianity is about living your life in God, through God, with getting everything from Him, right? And so when you have a need, rather than being angry and grumbling and quarreling, you run to Jesus, you run to the Father. And that's what we're going to find this morning in this passage is we have a deeper need than we realize, but God quenches our deeper need in ways farther than we know and deeper than we know. So let's dive in. We're going to have three points. This response to being thirsty, uh, the P- Israel's response, Moses' response, and God's response to the fact that they did not have water when they got to their new location. So here's the, here's the recap. Israel... Uh, has come out of Egypt. God has done miracles. He's he's opened the Red Sea for them. Egypt has been destroyed. And then what happens? They sing, they rejoice, and then they're thirsty. And so God provides an oasis at Elim. We talked about this last week uh, in verse 27 of chapter 15, right? There were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. It was a beautiful location. They had all the water they needed, but it was time to move. So God draws them back out into the wilderness in in chapter 16, and they're hungry, right? And so God provides bread from heaven in the form of manna. He also provides quail after their grumbling. And now we see in our passage, all the congregation, verse 1, they move from the wilderness of sin. That is not an allusion to our English word sin, though it is an apt description for it, of what they were doing there. Uh, they left in stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim. What that means is they've just had manna, they've just realized God's provided, and they start leaving in stages, and when they arrive to this new location, what do they do? They, are they, are they, the question is, are they thirsty and like absolutely in need of water right then, or are they simply realizing, this is great, you know, this is a nice location, but where's the stream? What do you do when you go camping? What do you do when you're in the wilderness or you're a survivalist? The first thing you look for is a source of water. 
And it's important to understand that. They were not out of water, in my opinion, because even in chapter 16, they weren't asking for water. They would have been thirsty had they not had any nomadic method of taking water from Elim. Rather, I think they showed up to this new camp where they seem to be, they're going to stay for a while, and they don't see any possibility of a stream, of a regular source of renewable water, and they panic. And what we've been looking at in the past passages was how they grumbled, but in this passage, what Moses tells us is they quarrel. They are angry, right? They say in verse 2, give us water to drink. And in verse 3, they say, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They are thirsty. But, the, but the, what makes it interesting how Moses writes this in Exodus is he, he says this. In verse 3, but the people thirsted there for water. And I think, I think that it would have read a little differently if they were actually, in the moment, thirsty. I think it was saying they longed for something. And what they longed for in their minds was water. That was going to solve everything. That was going to make all their needs. If they, had, they already had food. God's providing manna. He does so for 40 years. Now they need water. And this is our heart, right? We are people who are constantly thinking if we just had something, everything would be settled, right? It's idolatry. I, I, I'm an idolater in this way. Um, as a child, I remember not only did I have my everyday wants, but I remember going through seasons where I got fixated on something, and it was all I could think about. I had a binocular phase, you know, where, I mean, I, mean, I don't know if I was eight, but I had to have a certain type of, I mean, one year, finally, some of the golfers in the front will appreciate this, I needed a set of golf clubs. So I was a junior golfer, um, I was trying to play a little bit more, and I was convinced I needed more than three irons, right? And so I started longing for a set of golf clubs. And the way I went about this was um, I ruminated on it. I thought about it. I knew this would solve all of my golfing woes. Uh, I even drew pictures. I remember sitting at my desk going, you know, I wasn't practicing. I think, Chris, you probably said, just got done practicing. No, I'm drawing golf clubs. That's my, that was my method of getting better at golf. But there was something that I felt like if I just had that, that would solve all of my problems. And that is really a picture of idolatry. Now, I'm wondering if we can relate. I want to read this definition of an idol. The difference between an idol and, say, what you might just say is sin is if, if I said to you, I robbed the bank, and you're not going to go, that's an idol. You say, that was sin. You, nobody should ever rob banks, right? We all in agreement. An idol is something that you actually use and need, and it can be good, right? And yet, the problem is what makes an idol so dangerous is we, it takes the place of Jesus. Here's the definition. An idol is anything we believe we need apart from Jesus to make us happy, satisfied, or fulfilled. An idol arises when we desire something more than we desire Jesus. When we fear things other than God. When we worship ourselves rather than Christ. And the reason we resort to idolatry is not hard to find. When we fall away from God, we experience great need, deficiency, and alienation. And so in order to fulfill ourselves in that feeling, we turn to the created order. We turn to things, reputation. Um, we turn to anything that can serve lo love, desire, trust, fear, worship, anything that can give us what we're after. 
right, that can meet that, that need. And so the question I want to ask you as we move a little bit deeper into this, this discussion is do you see where you have idols? Do you even agree that you do that? Right? If you are a Christian and you want to grow in Christ, Shane, I love what, oh, you're over here, what you said at the confession. Christianity is not a place where we pretend we don't have idols. Christianity is not a, the church is not a place where we pretend we're not sinners. It's a place where we need to begin privately and maybe with friends exploring the fact that we really do run from Jesus. We really do panic. We really do grumble. And according to this passage, we even quarrel. We have these idols. So have you identified your idols? Have you identified the things you're after to medicate your deeper longings? And then secondly, the, this we're looking at this, this entire point is Israel's response to the problem of no water. Not only are they revealing their idolatrous hearts that in their minds water is going to solve every problem, which it won't, they also do something else, they quarrel. And Moses explains what quarreling is when he says you're, you're not trusting God. When you quarrel, you're not trusting God. You're actually you're denouncing God. You're actually saying, God, you can't provide. The very last verse we read is, is the Lord among us or not? That was verse 7. That's Moses' description of what the Israelites were doing. By, by quarreling, they were basically putting God in a way on trial. He is not who he said he would be. Moses, you are not who you said you would be. And so I want to just make us understand that when we start longing for these things to complete our needs, not only is that just bad for us, but we're le- actually telling God, you aren't enough. You don't complete me. And so faith is actually in the, in the moment when you have a need, food, water, job, relationship, things that are important, faith is trusting that God didn't draw you somewhere to leave you stranded, right? To trust that God will provide. And more importantly, this is the hardest part, to understand that what you're really after is deeper than the thing you think you need, right? We see this with children. They will, you know, we saw it with Esau giving up his birthright. Well, our own children would essentially do the same thing. You know, to get that, if I want to go to McDonald's. Not, we have this all the time. I want to go here. I don't want to go to that restaurant. Really? You hate that restaurant? You don't? I hate it. I'll never eat there again. It's the worst restaurant on the planet. I wish it never existed. Like three weeks ago, you loved that restaurant. Like, what happened? Well, in the moment, it doesn't serve my need. And to make my argument, which is far deeper than the restaurant I eat at, it's, it's, I've got to now say I hate it. And it's something that's, that's disgusting to me. And I think we do that with idols. We, we need something to complete us. And our whole sense of what we need has just been shifted and morphed and disintegrated. Because we're not turning to the Father like Israel, we're turning in on ourselves. So, idolatry, that's the negative. Last week we spent a lot of time on the negatives. For the first time in a while, I want to look at a positive response. Moses, he has a pretty positive thing to say. Here's this huge problem, and if you've ever been in any sense of leadership, a teacher, a parent, uh, so far as a pastor, I've not... No one's wanted to stone me, thankfully. But people can turn against you. And that's a very uncomfortable place to be. And here is Moses. He's come a long way. As we look at the life of Moses, remember when he first came to Mount Horeb, the burning bush, 
he revealed his own unbelief, right? He's like, I'm not the guy for you, God. I can't do it. Get somebody else. I'm slow of speech. I just want to, lay, I just want to stay in my life in the desert with my wife and kids and father-in-law. Leave me alone to somebody else. And now we're looking at Moses actually, I think, being a great picture of what a solid man of God, woman of God, he's not a woman, could look like when he just says to the people, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Verse 2. Now, he saw the same problem they saw. This is important. Moses had not yet found out God's method of getting water. He was aware of the same exact thing. You imagine each of these um, waves of people arriving to this new location, and the first wave says, I don't see the water. They start a whisper campaign. Did Moses choose this location? Was this what, did he think this was a good idea? The next wave comes in. Guys, you're not going to like it here. There's no water. The third wave, the fourth wave. By like the fifth wave and the sixth wave, they're, they're selecting the stones. They're going to have a trial, and Moses is in trouble. And he cries out to God, you know, why did you, uh, he cries out to God, why, sh- what shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And what that is showing is that they are going farther than grumbling. They are literally ready to put him into a judicial trial, right? And God's going to respond to that trial. But spiritually and emotionally, he handles it beautifully. He turns to them and says, you're not quarreling with me, you're quarreling with God. Why are you testing God? And so, is this your response when you come into a problem? That is amazing, isn't it? Can you imagine if the next um, scare you face, the next thing that just shocks you to the core, maybe the bedlam game coming up in a few weeks, I don't know, something that just shakes you to the core. One of us will be shaken. Um, I was hoping Shane would preach that week. I'm realizing that's going to be a very hard week for somebody to preach. Anyway, it's an aside. Um... Do you immediately just go, I trust the Lord. I trust that God will do this without any evidence at all. Have you you come to that place? Is that the essence of your Christianity? Right? And more importantly, I would say, or as importantly, do you recognize that this quarreling is not against you, but it's against God? Um, something that I think I want to just unpack a little bit, it, it kind of came to me like yesterday and today as I've meditated more on this passage. Moses has come along. Do you remember his sin pattern early on? What did he do in Egypt? He saw, that some, uh, he saw an Egyptian hurting an Israelite, and so he kills the Egyptian, thinking he did a good thing. What happened? Israel, the guy the next day says, what, are you going to kill me too? And he starts to realize, what? They don't like me. I'm not loved. I'm not the hero anymore. The Egyptian, you know, Pharaoh wants to kill him. The, Egyptian, the Israelites think he's just kind of a bully, and he flees to Midian. And really, he's a people pleaser. In fact, when God shows up at the, at the burning bush, one of the things he's afraid of is showing his face again to the Israelites. Hey, it's me, the failure, the one you rejected. He's terrified of them. Part of spiritual maturity is when you can learn. When the gospel is starting to take a hold in your life, you can begin to see that when people reject you, that it's not because of anything you've actually done. That's a very careful thing, right? Let's assume you you really haven't done anything, but you're still afraid other people don't like you. Does that happen to anybody? 
like every four minutes, right? Every, and I, I was talking to the high schoolers recently, um, and I'm not going to name anybody because the whole group, I, I'm going to, as an adult, you're missing out at our youth group. Our youth group, we get together on Sunday nights. Every time I'm like, what am I going to talk about? I'm going to talk about this passage, and youth, forgive me for my thought. I think, oh, it's, it's youth, and, and it's going to be harder to explain. And then they blow my mind with their questions every single time. This is not an invitation to come up with crazy questions for tonight. But what, one of the questions was, or one of the statements, and I'm not pointing out at anybody because it became agreeable to everybody in the room was this. I struggle, here's the statement, I struggle with really spending quality time with God because I'm spending all of my energy on making people like me. Now, every adult in this room, every college student in this room, it was true of you. But for that youth, particular person in the whole group started going, yes, me too, I want, to, you know, and, and they started chiming in, and we talked about social media and different things. The maturity to realize I am constantly measuring myself based on how you look at me. Moses had moved beyond that. Moses was finally able to say, it's not me you're judging. It's not me you're shaming on social media. It's not me you're snubbing. It's God. Right? Uh, and Moses found his identity in Yahweh. He's back at the burning bush location, and he knows who his Savior is, who God is. He doesn't know the full picture that we know today, but he knows he's where he needs to be. And he knows he has someone that's taking care of him, and he knows there will be water. And the Israelites did not realize that. So how do we get to where Moses is? How do we make the transition to where we go from acting like the Israelites, where we are immediately in panic, ready for a trial, judging, to Moses' stance where we say, I trust the Lord, and I don't have to worry about your quarreling against me because I have the Father. How do we get there? And that's the third point is God's response. Um, it's amazing to me, again, how this is written. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. This is a seven-verse passage, unlike some of our last ones, which are chapter long or more. And every word matters. So the writer here, Moses, doesn't put words that don't matter. So you have to read and ask, why, why such detail? Why not just, we showed up and there was no water? There's something about the fact that Moses is saying, the Israelites knew God commanded this. This is God's idea. Okay? And secondly, there's order involved. Stages. There's something about order. And nonetheless, the people are upset. Right? And, and they literally show up to where God has brought them and there's no water. Does that sound like anything familiar? Do you remember Abraham who's going up with Isaac to have a sacrifice? And he gets there to the mountain and Isaac is saying, where's the, where's the lamb? And God said, don't worry, he'll provide. Right? And of course he doesn't, so Abraham thinks he's going to have to actually sacrifice his son. But the angel catches his hand, doesn't he? And then provides the ram. But the faith of Abraham to just know that God would take care of him is the same faith we see in Moses. And God is looking at the people and saying, do you trust me? I didn't bring you here to a place with no water. I'm going to provide water. You just saw me provide manna. You woke up and there it was. Bread was just scattered everywhere and it even this very morning, the very morning 
You're saying you're thirsty. You woke up and gathered manna. Why aren't you trusting me? So God has a plan, and it involves not only them coming to a place in the desert without water, which exposes their orphan nature, it exposes their fear. He then says, let's have a trial. And that's what most scholars would say is going on here. In verse 5, the Lord says to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. That language is not... In, the, in other passages, he'll say, I'm going to provide bread. I'm going to take care of you. Here he just says, we're going to have a trial. And if you, if you picture the imagery, I mean, to pass by the people, this was a large group of people. Hundreds of thousands. So Moses is going to be passing by with a group of elders down this procession, and it really has all the imagery of a trial. You're going to get what you want, Israel. You want to stone Moses? We're going to have a trial. It's time to take care of it. Let's do it. And then the staff is significant. It's not just, you need a walking stick. It's a long way. Um, but this is a particular staff. And in this culture and other ancient cultures, uh, a staff was like an artifact that represented the events with which it was associated, right? And this particular staff was the one God had him use to strike the Nile or turn it to blood. Okay, that's significant. Not only is it blood, which is significant, but it's the way he began the plagues which freed them from Egypt, calling down, con calling down condemnation on the enemies of God. So with that staff in his hand, you know the people are thinking, this is going to get serious. What's going to happen? And they make their way to this rock. Okay, The rock is on Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. And they think, I mean, again, this is what scholars believe would be going through the minds of the Israelites. Moses is going down. We're going to elect a new leader. This guy was a chum. No water. What a dork. Let's move on. And they get to this trial, and all of a sudden, God descends on the rock. It is God that's going to be on trial. Several commentators said this God literally in the dock, like C.S. Lewis's work. He's the one that's going to be there. And Moses is commanded to strike the rock, signifying that it was God, it was Yahweh, as we have been talking about, it's pre-incarnate Jesus there before them being struck in order to provide them water, miraculously, and they drank. And they were filled. God provides the water. Last week we saw that when we looked at, the new, we looked at John 6, and it is fascinating that in John 7, the very next chapter, so in 6, he's the bread of life. And in chapter 16, he's the bread of life of Exodus. In 17, we have water from a rock. And in chapter 7 of John, at the Feast of Booths, Jesus stands up on the last day of the feast. And he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Do you thirst? That passage that I just read, and this story in Exodus 17, if it's not gripping you, and I would understand that, it's because you don't believe you're really that thirsty. You don't see yourself in a desert. You don't associate your needs, the outward needs, with the deeper longings of your heart. You are so quick, as am I, to medicate our deeper longings with outward stuff. Stuff that's okay. 
stuff that the society, the society said, that's fine. You can do that, watch that, eat that. We do it so quickly that we're not aware of our deeper longing for water to quench our thirst. And I want to turn our attention then to John 4, where I think it's more clear. The woman at the well, many of you know the story, she's there at noon getting water from this well because of her past, her shame. If she comes at other times of the day where other people are there, she'll be ashamed publicly, so she comes privately at a time where irreputable people come. And there she sees Jesus, and they have a debate. And he says, this water will not quench your thirst. I will give you water that will quench your thirst, and you'll never be thirsty again. But she debates some more. It didn't phase her, just like it didn't phase you. Until Jesus says this, go get your husband. She kind of paused. I have no husband. You are right in saying you have no husband. You have had five husbands, and the man you are living with is your sixth, and he's not your husband. And the woman said, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And Jesus said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We, the Jews, worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is seeking people to worship Him who understand their thirst, their longing, their need, and they're willing to expose that to Jesus and say, Lord, I have a deeper need. I thought it was this financial situation. I thought it was this health concern. I thought it was this relational struggle. I thought it was just I struggle with something like depression or whatever. All very real needs. And Jesus is saying, you haven't even begun to understand your need. Those are just tips of the iceberg. Do you thirst? Do you ache? Do you look at the world and wonder how broken it is and how it could ever be fixed? I remember even after 9-11, the thought crossed my mind, I will be shocked if we ever get over this. Did any of you have that thought that we're alive then? Is this disaster is so huge, we'll never get over this. And we did. We do. We move on. We just move on. We move on because we're so unsure of trusting Jesus with everything. We are so afraid of admitting there's brokenness all around that we get caught in our own little lives, our own little acres, and act like we have it together. And then we come to church and we smile and we act like it's perfect. And we wonder why the world has no desire to be with us. And Jesus is saying, I'm here to quench your thirst, but you have to admit you're thirsty. There's another story that came in from our, my past that really, it's another Bible story with Jesus. When I was in seminary, Emily and I had some financial struggles. And um, among, who knows, I mean, different types of struggles in seminary. But I was walking to a class and she and I were on the phone, and I just remember the moment where we're talking through something, and she said something like, Jesus can calm the storm. And I just, my first thought was, what if he doesn't? I don't know that I said it or not. But I remember just thinking, what if he doesn't calm the storm? Do you ever think that way? What if he chooses not to calm the storm? People die. People go in debt. People 
He gets sick. What if he doesn't calm my storm? And I remember getting off the phone and thinking about that story and thinking, where is the promise in that passage? Here, this, if you don't know the story or you want to be, there's a boat, it's the disciples, and there's a storm. I was talking to a friend the other day, Dan, I work with, and he said that a, a huge storm came through Stillwater, and he thought, what a perfect illustration for children. So just think of that storm the other day. It blew through. We all, it was like, there was four inches of rain, thunder out of nowhere. Now imagine you're on a lake, and your boat is just tipping, and water's coming in, and you're terrified. And you look over, and Jesus is asleep. And they quarreled with him. Basically, it almost comes out like they're saying, are you who you say you are? I mean, that would be a paraphrase. And what does Jesus do? He calms the storm. And he says, oh, ye of little faith. I always thought he was saying, if you had faith in me, you would know I could calm the storm. I don't think that's what he was saying. I think what he was saying is this. If you look and you see me asleep, it's going to be okay. What if water broke the boat, came in, and filled our lungs, and we sunk to the bottom of that sea? It's okay. I'm Jesus. I conquer death. We're going to be fine. I can go into death. I can have an illness. I can die. And the key to Christianity, to the gospel, and to this story is I don't have to have those things. That would be nice. I need Jesus. Do you have that view? Is that your hope? Have you gotten there? Where it's, it's not about him calming my storm. It's that he can calm it if he chooses to. But what he promises to do is to bring us into glory where there'll be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more sickness. Is that your hope? Or are you living a Christianity that's just, you're wincing for the next shoe to fall, and all the while you're sort of giving Jesus some credit along the way? Is he your source of water? And is it a living source of water? That you can expose every sin to him through prayer, through repentance. You can, you can be bold with other people. You can be honest. You can be authentic. Why? Because you are not judged by your conduct. You are not judged by what you've done or not done. You are only judged by who Jesus is. And you abide in him. Is that your hope? Is that your source of water? Is that what you, is that what you turn to to quench your faith.